Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is episode 1246 of the Survival Podcast. It's uh, November 12, 2013, the day after Veterans Day. Hopefully those of you who had never heard the Veterans Day special before uh, got something out of it yesterday. I run that same show every single year. Uh, there's a couple little time references in it now that I kind of screwed up when I re remastered it and redid the whole show. Um, and I just don't see taking those out at this point. You know, I say things like four years at one point or something like that. And today when I mentioned the Lou Rockwell story, but, uh, the, that version is now just played its third time. So that gives you kind of some, some, uh, some perspective on that. I don't think there's any need to change it. And again, I hope that those of you who had never heard it before learn something in it. And I hope that those that have heard it before didn't mind listening to it again. I, I hope that people out there, even with their families maybe, take this day that's just kind of another day for sales and some people get off work. And uh, think about what it really means. And it would mean a lot to me if you guys might start listening to that as kind of a family tradition along with the Thanksgiving and Christmas shows that we do every year. Anyway, uh, today we're going to actually talk about food forestry, how to grow a productive forest system that will feed you. And if you are not usually one that listens to the permaculture shows, I want you to try listening today, and I want you to let me make my case to you as to why you should care about this. And I don't care if one day you might have uh, 100 square feet to do this in or 100 acres. It doesn't matter either way. I think this is be a benefit today, and I'm going to make my case not just for why it works and how it works and explain things about it I've never explained before and things I've learned over the last year. I'm also going to explain to you why it matters and why it probably is our best shot at increasing our resiliency and our security as a people on this planet. And if you're concerned about su survivalism, then you really should put more time into the let's not let the house burn down part of the equation uh, than you do into when the house burns down, here's what we do. It's important that we have both sides of that equation worked out. But it's much easier to prevent a house from burning down than to survive a house fire, rebuild after a house fire, uh, try to put out a house fire, uh, even with good fire suppression and, and uh, you know uh, retard materials. Uh, a fire can still be a devastating event. We actually have had people on to talk about that. If you think about society that way, it's much easier for us to to start where we're at and put security back into society than wait till it falls apart and let someone else do it for us. Because the kind of security you'll get from others is not the kind of security that you're going to want. Um, there's a famous saying, those, those who will sacrifice liberty for safety deserve neither Um, sometimes you can increase safety without decreasing liberty. In fact, sometimes the greatest way in the world that you can increase liberty is through the increase of security. Not security provided, though, by someone else, but security that's intrinsic to the system itself. Specifically, security of food and water and medicine. If you can create that security for people without the government then you can really do something to stabilize society. That's that's what a forest does. 
That's what we're actually going to talk about today. So if you've never listened to a permaculture one before, give this one a shot. It may change a lot of things about the way you look at the world, and it may change a lot of things about what you think of as possible. All right, before we do that, let's get into uh, taking care of our sponsors today. Sponsor of the day, number one, Sawtooth Tactical. If you want all the cool stuff out there to live that tactical lifestyle, get over to sawtac.com. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and nestled in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. They've got it all. Magpul magazines, Maxpedition bags, everything in between, including the awesome Manly Titanium Spork. Check them out today. Sawtac.com. And remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. So if you're going to order from Sawtac, go to the benefits section of your Support Brigade membership first, and look in there and click on Sawtac, and you'll see the discount they give you and the uh, discount code to get it. Next up today, Ready Made Resources, the company that says what it does and does what it says. All the resources you need for your prepping, ready made, ready to go. Point, click, and buy on their website. Great shipping, great pricing, great service, and really cool people. Check them out today, readymaderesources.com. From gardening to guns, tactical to practical, and everything you can think of in the middle of those extremes, they've got it for you, readymaderesources.com. Also, on some orders, you can get some free silver from ready-made resources if you're an MSB member. Check the benefits section of the MSB to see about that. Uh, next up, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents per episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, and also active duty or prior service first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. Uh, and, you know, again, law enforcement in any capacity. All of you guys qualify for a service discount on the member support brigade. If you want that discount, just email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Service discount in the subject line in one or two sentences. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did. A little quick note on sending me emails. I say this often. I'm going to say it again today. I got an email from somebody today I did not read. Uh, I wanted to. But I have to discipline myself and not fall into the trap of reading emails that take, you know, multiple scrolls to get to the bottom of. A uh, person wanted some planning help. I think they were in the military and soon to get out and wrote me an entire diatribe. I emailed them back, said, if you can condense this in one paragraph, I'll see if I can help you. I know that when you start writing someone that you think might be able to help you, you think that more is better. It's not if you're wanting an answer from me. The best way to get an answer from me is ask me a question and use no more than two sentences to explain yourself after you ask me the question. It isn't that I don't want to help you. It's I've actually run the numbers. And if I were to respond to every legitimate email I get on an average week, not the spam emails, Viagra emails, emails from folks out there, and I were to give two minutes to each email, two minutes to each email, which even the way I'm asking for it, it would be hard to do. Um, I would spend more hours than there are in a day just answering email. I cannot do it, not because I don't want to, because I logistically cannot do it. So the best chance of getting an answer is brief, concise, to the point. Don't give me your life story. I know you think it's important, but a lot of times I can't advise you. If, if it takes that much information, it might be too personal for me to actually give you advice on. My advice is here on the air, and I do the best I can to keep that advice diverse. And, uh, again, I, I want you to understand when I say this stuff, it's not like, oh, look at how many people want to talk to me or anything like that. It's I really want to help as many of you as I can. 
And the more people that take that approach, the more people I can at least get something back to. Uh, a lot of times you guys might send me an email too that says something like, hey, thanks, I appreciate it. And it's just like a real quick hi, hello email. Sometimes I respond to those, sometimes I don't. Please know I read them all and they all matter. Um, just because you don't hear back doesn't mean I didn't see your email. All right. With that said, let's get into the main topic of today's show. I want to start out with, again, just a little bit of a case for why I, I do permaculture at all and why I'm so big on the whole concept of forest gardening and food forestry. Um, this is the reality. Just take a survival mindset for a moment. Look at what just happened in the Philippines. Now, yes, if you had your acre forest garden in the Philippines, right where the hurricane hit, they call it a typhoon over there, by the way, it may be completely decimated. I understand this. And if you, if your car gets hit driving down the road, your car's gone. That doesn't mean your car doesn't have value. If, uh, if all the power goes out and you have no backup power, your computer won't work if the internet's gone, right? So it doesn't mean you don't have a computer. It means you have certain things in place because they provide certain things for you. So let's look at what the big dangers are in society as a whole. And it's never hurricane, tsunami, government collapse, economic collapse. It's always, it's always down to this. The lack of systems of support. Notice the word systems, not system. And I think when we're breaking free from the system, it, we do well to use the word systems because there's multiple systems. So they say the system. I want to get out of the system. You're not in a system. You're in systems. Highly interdependent systems. Okay? And, and they, you know, you're talking about a financial system, a healthcare system, a, a mass production food system. A taxation system, a government, the government systems alone are a thousand that are all part of what's going on. And what you're preparing for when you prepare for survival, whether it's right in your own home or whether it's going out into the wilderness on a, a backpacking trip where something goes wrong and you can't, you don't, you don't get back as quick as you planned. And now you're on your own and you can't get to the store. So you got to make do with what you have in either, either event. It's the lack of systems that, that you're really preparing for. And this is why when people say, I'm preparing for an economic collapse, I'm like, you're done. You're sunk. You're never going to be successful at being prepared. Because you're so worried about this one thing, you're going to leave massive holes in everything you do. And then the response is always, well, then what the hell do I do? Because this is what I'm worried about. Fine, you should be worried. The economy sucks. It's going to suck worse. It's going to collapse. It's going to shift. It's going to do something terrible. We don't know exactly what. I can guess, I can give you my ideas, but yeah, you're right to be concerned about that. Well, then why should I prepare for it? Because between now and then, there's all kinds of other shit that could go wrong in your life. And if you just think economic collapse, you may have a dumbass idea like, well, I'm not going to worry about debt because when it collapses, I won't have to pay it. Bam, wrong answer. That will probably crush you in an economic collapse. It may not, but you can't plan for that. You absolutely cannot plan for that. So it's always back to systems of support. When we look at those, we think about it and we come up with a very small list. And I'll bring it back to the hurricane in the Philippines real quick when I get done with the list. Food, water, energy, security, med health and sanitation, and shelter. Okay? Food, water, Energy, security, shelter, 
and health and sanitation, I put in one. Okay. Now let's just examine what a, a, a properly optimized forest would do for us to those things. Food, self-evident. Self-evident. If you, I mean, if I have to explain how a forest made of trees that produce food and bushes and vines and shrubs and herbs that produce food feeds you. I, I cannot go forward. It'll never work. I give up if you, if you don't get that leap. So food, done. We've got food there. Water. If we're going to be managing something like a forest, one way or another, we're creating a watershed. Now, we may not be creating ponds. In my particular instance here, I'd love to, but I can only create these little ponds and all. But even those do provide some water security. But water is about more than just drinking. It's also about things like making sure that like the earth stays alive. If you've ever been to a desert in the dry season, you know how little life there seems to be, at least in green, around you. So water is part of the security of the forest itself, which is part of your security. But in a proper system, water is designed in one way or another. There is water designed into a system. Okay. The next one is security. If you have a managed forest system that you know and understand, even from a tactical standpoint, it can provide a great deal of security for you. But we can call that one limited when it comes to physical security. Like in a breakdown, yes, I have to come up with other methodologies, but I can design tactical components into a forest-based system. I absolutely can. But that's we'll, we'll shelve the security one and say we have to do something beyond the food forest for physical security. We have to know how to defend ourselves. We have to have security protocols. We'll just shelve that one. Okay, because right now we're doing pretty well. We've got food and we've got water and security shelved. Okay, how about shelter? A forest can be designed to provide timber. A forest can be designed to provide everything you need to build shelter. Now, if you're looking at an empty field, it may be way down the road until that shelter is provided. But if you're looking at a partially forested piece of land, you're going to go in and terraform you might be able to harvest a lot of that timber to build your shelter and build your forest around it. But one way or another, you can create the things that you need for shelter with a forest, or you can gather them from a forest. And, and you can do anything from a, a beautiful home to a lean-to with those types of materials. So shelter we can do with a forest. In fact, we can do a lot of things to mitigate the needs for what we think of as modern shelter with a properly designed forest because of things like shade and blocking wind. Right? Energy. Well, we can do something simple like a stand of black locust that can be coppiced every year for fuel wood. We can take things like certain pine trees that drop pine cones as big as your face can provide fuel. One big pine like that can provide enough material to cook with, with the right technology, almost every day of the year, just from one set of drop. There's, you know, a little, a little rocket stove You can just gather up stick fall and provide energy. There's massive amounts of energy that can come from a forest. We can even distill alcohol from certain fruits or nuts or byproducts of a forest and create alcohol both as a consumable, uh, which kind of goes in the food category, sort of. can also go in the medicinal category, but it can be an energy product as well. So we can do energy. So now we got food, water, 
energy, shelter. And we've got security, yeah, that's, that's got to be done elsewhere. So what's the last one? Health and sanitation. We can design into forest systems ways to deal with our human waste that actually increase the fertility of the forest. So we can have the sanitation component built right into the system. Composting toilets and things like that. If that's too far for you, that's okay. You don't have to. I'm just saying it can be done. And the dwelling that exists in this place can, can take care of that and do it without a lot of work. Do it easier than you think and make a lot of your problems with dealing with other people and other systems go away if you want to. When it comes to health, though, we can have a forest system literally loaded on its edges with medicinal herbs. And we can take care of a lot. Now, we're not going to do coronary bypass surgery with a book and some, and some basil, right? But we can take care of a lot of our health needs with the products that are around us. And we can add things into these systems that increase the, the security of all these things. So while the tactical security has to be shelved, the concept of security is big. So we'll take 50% of that. So out of my six needs, I get five and a half from a forest. Gardens don't do that. Gardens can't do all of that. This is impossible. Stockpiles, don't do all of that. It's impossible. Any other solution that you give me would be better if it were part of a forest-based system or will fall short. There's almost nothing that builds fertility faster than a forest. Um, lakes and ponds, as they success into eventually going away, build topsoil extremely fast on their bottoms. Mangrove swamps, shallow marine systems build soil faster than forests. Nothing else does. Nothing else can. The, 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 the next thing in that chain is a forest. So it's massively productive. I'll get to the why behind that in a bit. But understand that if you want productivity and you want sustainability, you want to have to not bring in stuff all the time. Once you get it up and running, you want the system to provide for its own needs. You want the surplus it generates usable and returnable. So everything a system creates should either be something you can use, whether it's a product for sale, a product for consumption, a product for fuel. And, and in that use, any waste that's created should go right back to that system. Or it's a productive, it's something the system produces that you don't take as a yield and it somehow cycles within that system back into a nutrient cycle. Or it feeds an animal that cycles a nutrient. And, and nothing does that the way a forest does. And to give you an idea of what's possible, I'm going to read for you a list right now. Because everybody says, what do I plant? What do I plant? And the reality is I found uh, a local supplier in Lindale, Texas. Um, can't even remember this, the name of the place right now. or I'll give them a plug. But I'll give them a plug in the future. Um, so, and that, that has species that do well in Texas. Um, they're out near the Tyler area, so they're about the same latitude. I'm a little further west. I get a little less rain. But overall, they look like a great supplier. And I was able to find everything there except two, thing, two, two trees I want to plant. Now, when I read you this list, I want you to understand something. This is not a full list of everything going into this food forest. And it's only on about three-quarters of an acre, this, this strip that this is going into. This is mainframe, long-term, big tree plantings, 
into the swales into this food forest. That so it's three strips of trees. There will be interplanted uh, bushes, shrubs, and vines that will go into the system as well. Into this system will also go about 280 support trees, most of which will be dead within five years. And I'll talk about the why behind that later. So to, 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 there's, there's no herbs mentioned here. There'll probably be over 100 different herbs into this system. There's no mention of cover crops, the interswale pastured areas where basically it'll be you know, things like plantain and, and uh, clovers and grasses that will go in between these strips of forest that animals will be able to graze. This, this is just the trees and just the long-term productive trees. And I'm only giving you this list, not so that you'll write it down, but by the time I do the workshop that's coming in, in later this month, uh, there'll be a PowerPoint deck with how this was all just done, and I will give that to everybody, not just students. But here's what's going in. So don't try. My point is, don't try to write this down because unless you live where I live, you will probably come up with a different list. Um, an all red plum, a Santa Rosa plum, an Ozark uh, uh, Promise plum, uh, a Burbank plum, a Texas Mission almond, a Hall's Hardy almond, uh, four Chinga pins, which are like small uh, chestnuts. An Ayers pear, a Lacant pear, an Orient pear, a Gala apple, a Fuji apple, uh, an Arkansas black apple, Honeycrisp apple, um, a Jonah red apple, Texas uh, Texas star peach, a Texas royal peach, a June gold peach, a Sam Houston peach, talk, a Choctaw pecan, a Tejas pecan, um, a Fuyu persimmon, uh, a Eureka persimmon, a, a Kajuro Asian pear, a 20th century Asian pear, a Haas Asian, a Husai Asian pear, um, two pawpaw trees, two Lang jujube trees, two Lee jujube trees, um, two mini royal cherries, and two royal Lee cherries. Those are low chilled cherries that can handle our environment. A beautiful day mulberry and a sweet lavender mulberry. Those are mulberries with white to lavender fruit that don't stain. Um, those are the trees that will go into three quarters of an acre that will be there five years from now. Again, there's another 280 trees going in that are just support species, leguminous, nitrogen fixing, biomass accumulating support trees. Maybe one out of 20 of those will be in the final system. Probably two, let's see, what it will it be? Three. Two, five, seven to seven to eight in the actual system will remain. So I want you to think about. It. I want you to get your head around that. We're talking a three-quarter acre strip might be given a little bit more space. It might not be a full three-quarter acre strip, um, and it's only three swale lines. So swale, for those that are new to this, is a ditch on contour. So it's a ditch we're going to dig, we're going to build a berm on the downside, we're going to plant those trees into those berms. And those swale ditches, when water comes from rainfall, water will sit in them instead of running away and soak into the land. So it's just three strips there. So there's what's called inner swale, which is in between these strips, there's this open space. And we'll do some shrubs and stuff in there, but that'll be a lot of herbal and, and you know ground cover layer stuff. Three quarters of an acre. Lots of suburban yards run in the half to three-quarter of an acre. Now, there might be a house and a garage and things that take up space, and there's a front yard and a backyard. Could you cram that many in there? You probably could, 
but you probably wouldn't do it the way I would. You would probably do a lot more intensive planning and pruning. You actually would probably, in an urban space of a half acre or less, put in more, not less. But you would keep them pruned much smaller. You take the, the, the urban approach to this. The tree gets high enough that you can't reach the top anymore. You cut that off. Where I'm looking to put these 40 trees into 12 to 16 to 20 foot canopies depending on them, and I'll stagger them in the system so the biggest trees are to the east side of this property and the east southeast side of this property and the smaller trees work out to the west to create an edge effect and to get solar exposure to everybody. Cool? 40 trees, three quarters of an acre, just one component of this forest. Lots of food security. Lots and lots of food security. So real quick, though, let's talk about the layers that go into this. And I'm going to go fast with this, but I just want you to understand that all forests have all of these layers. The first is the canopy. So the canopy in my system will be things like full-size apples, pecans, your larger trees, your full-size pears that get up really high. And, and that, in your forest, you end up usually with, once you get deep into a forest, more than a couple feet inside the edge. Like, so you go from a, a prairie to a forest, and you go in, you know, 50 yards, you pretty much get to, it's almost all canopy. And there'll be a little bit of the second layer in there, which is subcanopy. And those are the smaller trees that are lower down. And in the, in the deep part of the forest, there's not a lot of those because they can't get a lot of light. And most of them aren't a different species of, of, of the climax. They're the same species, by and large, and they're just waiting. They're waiting for one of the monarchs of the forest to reach its capacity and fall over, and then they're going to jump up because they have a huge root system by then, and they're ready to fill that gap. But as you move further out toward the edge of the forest, you find subcanopy where the species are different. And they're often your fruiting trees, your flowering trees, your nut trees that, that you move out to the edge. You know, your smaller nut trees like chingapins instead of your big overstory, you know, uh, nut trees like hickories and oaks. You'll find the smaller nut trees out there at that edge. That subcanopy layer. And we can design a system that mimics that formation with the canopy and the subcanopy. You'll come down then to a shrub layer. And I just want you to think about Whenever you've taken a walk into a forest and there hasn't been a nice path created for you by the park service and you've come out of a field into a forest, how you get into this tangled, gnarled thing. And as you go, it gets easier. Once you get past the vines and stickers and briars, and then you get into kind of like this, this area where there's small trees and, 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 and bushes. And that's the shrub layer. And so you want to build things into your system that are in that shrub layer as well. These are generally very productive. These are your berries, your fruits, things like that, small nuts. And that is part of this architectural system. All right. And just as you're getting into there, and even once you get back in, you'll see this in both, you know, both the deep forest and the forest edge. You'll find vines, the briars, the grapevines, the muscadines, climbing up trees, tangling together, things like that. That's your vining layer. It's another layer. As you come out of the tangle a little bit, you'll find a lot of plants, just regular plain old plants. Stuff that's, you know, knee high to head high to, to ankle high. 
And this is where all your herbaceous plants are. So this is the herbaceous layer. And if you look down on the ground, anywhere but in the deep forest, you'll see something growing and crawling around on the ground. Just about any system like this. Nature abhors exposed dirt. It will cover it up. So that's your ground cover layer. So there will be grasses and running things on the ground. And if we were to dig into the soil, we'll find some root layers or rhizomial layers. So not just the roots of the trees, but we'll actually find yields. You know, something like a sweet potato produces a, a, a tuber that we can get a yield from. In the eastern woods, groundnut. Uh, in, in a lot of places that you, you know, throughout the United States, one of the most widely distributed plants is the sun choke or Jerusalem artichoke that will grow like crazy right in that edge environment and produce a tuber. So it's both herbaceous, above the ground, annual plant, dies every year, right, herbaceous, and root layer is a tube yield. And that root layer we need to think of is much bigger than just the stuff we can pull out and eat, like a groundnut or an artichoke. We also have these nitrogen-fixing shrubs, bushes, herbaceous, and trees that all have root yields of nitrogen that gets shared with other plants. So we have that system of layering in there. And that is the magic of the forest. And without that, it doesn't work. But if you think of that tangle that you go through to get into a forest and how it's hard to find, you don't want it to be exactly like that. You want it managed and controlled, but you want to see to it that all those layers are there. The ground is covered. Vertical spaces are taken up with climbers. There's some thought put into what's going in at the root level. There's bushes and shrubs for that shrub layer. There's smaller trees and larger trees. That inner relationship system is extremely, extremely stable. And it does something that you can accelerate and make work more effectively by spacing things out more than nature does, giving a little more space for things, and putting in pathways and understanding where your access is and putting certain trees in certain places so you can make your harvest easy. So that it's not a complete tangle, but all the layers are in place. And when that's done, what happens is your small tree doesn't have to compete with your big tree for sun because they're in a spatial relationship where the small tree gets exposed to the sun even if the big tree is getting sun too. Instead of, we wouldn't put the small tree to the northeast of the big tree where it gets shaded out for most of the day unless it's a tree that likes that. There are some trees that actually do well in shade. And most of those trees are things like pawpaws and it's why people have problems with them, by the way. They plant them in the shade so they do well in the shade. Oh, they do well in the shade, but they establish in the sun And when they get up into their subcanopy and they're fully mature, then they can function with less sunlight. But they need that solar energy to put that root system in. So we're going to think about those relationships. And if we do that, the big thing is, since the trees are at different heights and the bushes and shrubs are at different heights, they're not competing for the exact same stuff above or below ground. Their roots are different. Instead of everybody having like a monocrop of corn, all the roots are in the exact same strata of the soil. So they're competing for the same nutrients at the same ratio at the same level. A forest, different nutrients, different levels, different root structures, different requirements. Everybody's taking something a little bit different from the system and providing something back to it. So it's stable. And I want to talk about these support trees. And I want you to, I want to kind of explain why so many. I'm doing seven to one. 
Seven times four is 28. So seven times 40, 280. Lawton does nine to one usually. Um, I think that he needs more in a tropic system with more fragile soils than I need here. And, and frankly, I, I have a hard time envisioning where I'm going to fit 280, let alone 360. So I've, I've capped it there. But what's, what's really going on? I think most people that listen to this show understand nitrogen fixation. For those that don't, I'll explain it briefly. Um, there are certain plants. Some are trees, some are bushes, some are vines, some are shrubs. I just learned today that honeysuckle is a nitrogen fixer. So there's another nitrogen fixer you can add into your designs. It's not a productive food source, but boy, bees like it, right? So what happens is most nitrogen fixers, not all, so there's some that just do it, and they would, some that we don't even understand exactly how they do it, but most nitrogen fixers have a functional relationship with bacteria in the soil. And basically the bacteria build little nodules on their roots, and those bacteria fix nitrogen and give it to the tree, and the trees give energy to the bacteria. And when we do this with a tree, and it grows up, let's say, six and a half, seven feet tall, and then at a certain time of the year we come in and we cut the top off that tree and throw it to the ground, we've now created an imbalance. There's more roots than tree. And the, the tree will literally prune off some of its roots, and that nitrogen will now become available to the other plants. That's, that is the reason everybody tends to understand once they do a little bit of study on food forestry for this. It is not the end of the story, though. Part of it is understanding and realizing how quickly forests build soil and how we can accelerate that. When you cut that, that mass off of that tree and you drop it to the ground, there's also nitrogen there. If it's a legume tree, it's probably got pods on it when you're doing this. The pods and the seeds are high nitrogen. The, the woody stem is some and mostly carbon. And what you're doing at this level is pretty easy to understand. Think about a, a forest in North America, deciduous forest. Every year, a, just a ton of leaves drop to the ground, and they build soil. And it's such a huge amount. If you've ever raked the leaves from one oak tree in a front yard, you realize how much leaf drop there must be in an acre of actual forest, real full-on mature forest. It's massive. When you take these leguminous trees, these support trees, and you cut them once or twice a year, you're accelerating that. You're dropping more mass than they would drop in the fall because you're dropping sticks, twigs, vines, and you're forcing regrowth. So you're pulsing the roots in the soil, but you're also taking all that biomass and dropping it. When you cut these trees, you cut a branch, and five, six, seven, eight sprouts come back in the next growth spurt and it produces more the next time and you cut it and it does it again and you cut it and it does it again so that's part of it it's not just the nitrogen in the soil it's this biomass how do you build soil kill trees selective plant killing of trees this is what nature does nature would let that that tree in nature most of these trees will come to an age of somewhere between 15 and 30 years and die on their own. And by then, the trees they've sheltered take over. Okay, We're accelerating 15 to 30 years into 4 to 5 years by manually pruning these trees and accelerating the process. Because there's less competition with the support tree and the long-term tree then, the long-term tree gets more solar radiation, it grows faster, and the system successes to maturity faster we're s accelerating that 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 process
So we're taking a system that would take a hundred years to establish and establishing it in five to ten, and then people whine that it takes too long to grow trees. You have to really think about that. Now, will that tree be as big around as it would be in a hundred years into the system? Some, some, yeah, because that tree wouldn't be there for a hundred years. But no, I'm not saying that you're going to build trees to the size that a hundred year system would have. But you'll build the productivity and the stability that it would take nature a hundred years to do on its own. We can do it five to ten, and that's pretty amazing. And then things just get better from there. And they do speed up from there because now these healthy, robust apples and almonds and pears and pawpaws are given full advantage over everything else in the system. Where normally they'd have to compete for it for a century or more to get to it. So it's, it's, it's really, really awesome when you think about it. But there's something going on here that I've never heard anybody talk about. And I want to switch gears to a second to the concept of Hugel culture. If you've never heard of Hugel culture before, it's one of the simplest concepts in the world you can get your head around. There's a lot of different ways that people do it. I call it wood core beds because it, it's clearer to people in America what that is. And a Hugel bed in, in, you know, Europe where this concept comes from and made famous by Sepp Holzer, uh, and Paul Wheaton is a high bed. So you're talking three to six feet high. 70-degree angle, big, big berm structure with a bunch of wood in the core. But in America, we looked at that and said, well, not everybody wants a six-foot-high berm everywhere. So people have dug holes in the ground. They've made little piles, big piles, medium piles, round piles, long piles, and it works. It works like crazy. It holds nutrient. It wicks water from the subsurface up. And the, the big rule is none of the, none of the wood needs to be sticking out anywhere. If it's all covered, this works. And that wood core breaks down, it holds nutrient, it builds fungus, it builds soil, it wicks moisture, it holds moisture, it's just awesome. Guys, a food forest with massive numbers of support species is a giant hugel culture where we don't have to dig up the dirt and bury the wood. When you look at a tree, I want you to I want you to get your head around this. This is really important if you really want to understand what's going on here. And, and I know Jeff Lawton's doing this. I don't know if he gets that he's doing this because I've never heard him mention this. And it seems too important that if you realize it's what you're doing, uh, you, you wouldn't say it. So when you look at a tree, there's almost as much generally mass to the tree below the ground as above the ground. Let's, for craps and giggles, say it's 30% of what's above is below. It's not 100% identical because the trunk has a lot of mass that is not, unless it's a big taprooted tree with deep soil, is not fully represented in the, in the root system. But it's, it's way more than, than 30%. Okay? Then I want you to think about how much mass there is in a couple hundred trees. And say 30, 40, 50%, whatever number you're comfortable with accepting is below the ground, is below the ground. And then I want you to think about when those trees die and all that root system is below the ground and it dies. And it sits there in a rotted state with fungal growth on it. And it takes another 10 years or more for it to really break down as all the other trees that success forward tie into that network it's created. How much of a water reserve is in there? 
How much of a nutrient reserve is in there? How much of a fungal reserve? It's hugel culture on a massive scale. It's an acre of pure hugel culture that you build over four or five years, but you don't dig anything except if you put swales in, you dig the swales. And it can be done without swales. The right climate with enough water, you can just do it. That's what's really going on. We're building a massive amount of soil by, by building roots, not just by building trees. And it's, it's part of why you can build soil faster with a forest than just about anything else we can do. Again, shallow marine systems are about the only thing that can do it faster, but it's easier and more practical with a forest. We don't have to dredge the material out or lose the aquatic system and success afford. We're just planting trees and killing selected trees. So that's how we can accelerate a natural cycle. Now, why? Why do we want to do this? Because we want our productivity faster. You look at the productivity time of something like a pecan or a hickory, and it's in a walnut, long term. You know, it takes a long time to get really productive. Even apples and pears and things like that, they'll fruit a little bit for you as they're growing. But, you know, you're looking at a tree that, generally speaking, most people think of as a six to ten year project before it's really productive. Well, in these systems, they can be really productive in four, sometimes three years. And they reach a productivity at that 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 ten year level that it's, it's, it's well beyond what it would have done otherwise. We're accelerating it because we want it. And we want it as soon as possible because we only have so much time. We accelerate it because we can. And we accelerate it because it gives us a desired result. At the same time, at some point, we might slow a system down. Urban permaculture with urban forest gardens is a perfect example of this. So you might, in a backyard, plant a system very similar to this, but even more intensively. You might not even put in a lot of the support trees. You might put in uh, one support tree to every uh, tree. It, it, with an intensive system, quarter acre or less, you can like bring just bring leaves and lawn clippings and stuff. You might plant one to two, one support to two main. You might not even do that. You might do people do it 100% what they want. I, I think it's a mistake. I think some support species should go in, but you might do it. But you're going to stop the growth. You're going to stunt it at a point. And you might use full-size rootstocks. No semi-dwarfing, whatever. Big, healthy roots. You're making giant bonsai trees. Again, the tree gets to where you can't reach anymore. You're going to stand on your tiptoes, prune it. It gets up there again, prune it. Up there again, prune it. And we're holding it in a, a mid-successive state for as long as possible. Forests go to maturity, and then they climax, and then they decline and begin the process again. We're trying to hold And how long can this be done? We know of one food forest in Morocco, in the desert. It's 2,000 years old. It's been held in a mid-succession state, that most productive state, prior to climax, prior to full-on climax. Because climax, you only got one. If you when you hit climax, there's only one place to go, down, right? You can't go when you get to the top of a hill. You can stay there a while, but sooner or later, any direction you go from there is is decline. So what you're actually doing to hold or slow down is taking a lot longer to reach the climax stage of a forest, and that could be 
10, 20, or more human generations. Gardens don't do this. Forests do. And so what, we, what do we do to do that? We, we keep clearing things out. We don't let things go too far. So as the tangles start to come in, we prune them out. Or we, easier, we run animals through these systems. So we have our, our lines of, of, of trees and bushes and shrubs, and in the spaces in between that we want to keep cleared out, we run chickens or goats or pigs or all three or geese. And the animals will do a wonderful job of keeping the undergrowth cleared out for us. I've had people say, well, I have this, this tangled, mangled mess of woods, and I, I don't know how to get in there and clear out the understory so I can really start to figure out what I want to remove and what I don't. I don't want to bring machine in. Put cows in there. Put cows in there for a day. They'll open it up like a park. And they'll give you free fertilizer while they'll do it. They'll, I mean, I've seen, look up Greg Judy on YouTube. Greg Judy. And look at his presentations on mob grazing and where they put cows into a forest. They're in there for a day and it's just, the understory's gone. They move their thousand pound animals, guys. What they don't eat, they trample. They move. But they don't take down the big trees. If you can do that with a tangle, you can use the same animals to prevent the tangle from occurring and, and put them in at right timings. So we can do it with animals. We can do it manually by hand. Or in some states, we can let the system just go. If you really want to, you can. It'll climax. And it'll produce for long, longer than you're going to produce for. It's all up to us how we want to control it. But in most instances, especially if there's any commercial nature to things, we want to control the mid-succession state. We want to hold it. We want to keep certain avenues open. We can do things like when people say, well, how do I harvest then? Well, you can plan into your system based on the time that these, these, these trees are productive so that a certain area everything's productive in that area at one time, one week. So I'll go to that area and harvest. I might be doing plums and, and, and pears and apples instead of just apples, but they'll all be there. Or I can just, if it's not that big a system, if it's an acre or two, as long as I have clearly defined zones where I can walk through, I can just go through and harvest at will. It's not that complicated. It's only... The belief that the only way to be productive is to have a machine drive down and go boom, 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 and spurt grain into a, a truck that makes us even ask that question. It's, it's really not necessary. Um, and I, again, I want to go back to what needs we can meet with this. Food, shelter, energy, those are easy. We can do a lot. It's almost more like, well, what can't this do for us? Can it provide that tactical security? No, but it can be an element of it. Would you rather defend yourself in a place with lots of concealment or no concealment? A big empty field or a place with all different types of concealment and some cover? So we can design a lot of tactical in there. But what else can think about what you need in your life and what you want in your life? Beauty? Check. Done. Animals for protein? No problem. What about sugar? How much money is spent and how many resources wasted to grow corn and turn it into sugar in ways that destroy soil or to get sugar cane from many parts of the world that are completely abused so that we can have sugar? What can we do for sugar in a, in a forest? Well, I mean, you can get sugar from fruits and things like that. And, and I don't eat a lot of sugar, but I, I acknowledge the need for some 
some of it. But the reality is bees love forests, especially a managed forest like this. All seven layers, you've got flowers and blossoms at all times. You need the bees for pollination. So we bring bees into that. Now we have honey. Now we've got sugar. We've got a potential for alcohol. Right? We can do distillation. I wouldn't do it with mead, honey, honey wine, but we can with the fruits. We can, we can look at and say, well, some things need to be preserved, especially medicinally. Well, we can distill, especially our fruits that are kind of like, you know, part of permaculture is understanding, well, yeah, that, that apple got pecked by a bird. And now it's being kind of hammered by insects. I, I don't have to spray the system because of that. I don't. It's, it's a Jonah apple sitting there with a couple leguminous trees around it and then a pear tree here and a chingapin there and a, ju, a, 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 a jujube over here. And there's not another apple for another, you know, couple more trees. Whatever insects eating that apple doesn't have any real place to go. A bird's going to eat them. The bird that pecked open the apple in the first place. Well, that apple, once the animals have taken what they want, that's not really a good apple for a pie, but it and any other fruit like that, the windfall stuff, could be made into a cider or could then be distilled into a brandy or even a higher alcohol, a pretty high pure alcohol. Now, I know we're not supposed to do that, but knowledge is power, and it's the knowledge that you could if you had to. Now you have alcohol. High enough proof, now we can start using it for uh, things like decoctions and herbal preservations. I mean, you almost have to, like I said, you almost have to ask yourself, what could a fully managed, well thought out forest system not provide you? And, and the answer is there's not a lot of things that you need that it can't do for you. Fuel, you think about a system like I'm going to put in, we're going to put these berms around the system. right? Not just, not just there, right? a three acre property. There'll be berms around most of this property. Uh, we'll plant a lot of things into those berms that are direct food production, but we'll probably plant quite a bit of black locust in there. How much fuel and timber and fence post material is that? But then we're back to like support. Now it's also fixing nitrogen. We're getting when we're when we're pruning out fuel wood and stuff like that. We're getting some leaf yield and stuff like that that we don't really need. Well, some of it might be forage for livestock, but a lot of it just goes to the ground, and now it's building soil. But what does that tree also do? Flowers, huge yields of honey. Now we're back to bees and pollinating insects. So now we've got fuel, construction material, fertility building, one tree. One tree is an afterthought in the periphery of a system. Tool, tool making capability, handles and things like that can be made out of black locust. I mean, there's, and that's just one tree. We could do some honey locust, honey mesquite. These are also different bloom times, different materials. Fuel wood again, though. Tool wood, artisan wood. We could put willow into a system like this. And in, in an area that we create as a very wet area, we could put in willow. And willow could be used for basket weaving. Could be used for making charcoal, for artisan charcoal. Give me something we need, not something we want. I mean, I can probably do a fair job with wants too, but just a need for commerce, for society to function, and a forest can provide it. A big system? A big system can be managed in such a way that the, everything that I'm talking about is your like what you would call your zone four. 
big system would have this big zone five that's even bigger than the zone four. And that's pretty much left alone. That's nature. That's nature's forest. Deer, elk, rabbits, squirrels, all types of game that could be taken out of those systems. And the strong managed system makes the natural system stronger and it makes us need it less. So we pressure it less so it can then give more back to us than we need rather than extracting everything from it. And, and guys, if you think that this type of design is it necessary that we could just pretty much stop screwing stuff up and, and, and everything would fix itself, right? Just get a carbon tax. That'll be great. A carbon tax. It'll be less CO2. And the earth will cool. Duh. God, don't be that dumb. Don't buy into that crap. Right now, Our forests throughout the world are dying, and nobody even gets it. They're blaming the maggot for the fact that the garbage is rotten. I want you to think about that. So let's say you had a garbage can full of waste, like guts from a bunch of chickens or fish or something like that, and you just left the garbage can sitting there, and it starts to stink and rot, and smell, and there's flies buzzing around it, and then there's maggots eating it. How much sense would it say to say the problem there is the maggot and the flies? If we got rid of the flies and the maggots, everything would be okay. Well, folks, when they tell you that the problem they have with the pine forest is the pine beetle, and the reason all the ash trees are dying is from the ash borer, and all of these other things... It's as short-sighted as, as it could possibly be. You're blaming the maggot for the rotting flesh. We've sterilized the forest. We've sanitized them. We've taken out their biodiversity. We've reduced their ability to, to propagate and recreate themselves. We, we've, we've, we've taken and taken and taken, and we've monocropped even our forests with pine and ash and other things that we see as being quick-growing and giving us what we want now, right, without the diversity, And the system has broken down, it has begun to rot, and when something begins to rot, nature sends decomposers. The pine beetles attacking the pine forests are maggots, because the forest they're decomposing is rotting. And it's true. If you do nothing, well, those pines will, will die from the pine beetles. The pine beetle goes in there, he does his little hole. He walls it up, and he kind of hangs out for a while, and eventually the pine tree takes a big sap plug and shoves his butt out, and he you know, completes his life cycle and goes on and makes more pine beetles. And the pine beetle in the hole doesn't actually hurt the tree. The pine beetle carries a fungus. The fungus goes in the tree. The tree is being decomposed. I want you to think about that. The tree, instead of being decomposed once it falls to the ground, is being decomposed while standing. It's a blue fungus that gets in the tree, kills the tree. A fungus is doing the work. It's just been accelerated by the actions of the beetle because the tree needs to go. Because the system is dying. So the pine tree will sit there. It'll dry out. You're idiots in the National Park Service. If this is a National Park, going, we want nature to fix the problem, so we're not going to do anything. We're just going to leave it there. And we'll cut down tons and tons of other acreage and leave those trees stand. They will dry out drier than a bone, and sooner or later... A spark will happen, and those trees will burn like you've never seen before. And eventually it'll rain, and all of that ash will come tumbling down the mountain, huge uh, 
a, a huge fertility yield that'll make a mess out of some place, some town you'll see on the news and people crying. But eventually, little spouts of green will come up and that system will turn into something totally different and begin the process again. Succession, climax, decline. It'll happen. But it'll take a long time and some places it won't come back. The slopes are, slopes are too steep. The erosion's too severe. And the system's not meant to success that way. It's not meant to all fail at once. It's only all failing at once because we've altered it to the point where it's dominated by a single species. If the, if the, 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 the pine forest that you're looking at was 40% or 50% or even 60% pine, and the beetles killed all the 60% of pine, there'd still be 40% there to hold everything together. The problem with these stands is they're not 40% or 60% pine. They're 80 90 100% pine. And there's literally nothing left once they die. If we want to fix these systems, this is how we do it. And we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it everywhere all at once. It's not going to happen. But we each can beachhead it in these little places. And these healthy systems do multiple things. One, you build an acre or two like this, and it does have a dramatic effect on the surrounding area in a couple ways. One, it actually, because it creates so much biodiversity, so much health, so much vigor, and so much nutrient cycle, some of that spreads. You, you see it with people who are just intensive gardeners in the city. All of a sudden, a tomato just grows out of the sidewalk, you know, not on the guy's property, like two houses down. And it does well there. That effect happens, and it's just the start. Now, you need thousands of systems to start having that impact. But it has a visual impact. People see it and they emulate it. The best way to get people to do things is to do it first and have it work and have them look at it and envy it. Yes, envy can be a strong, positive emotion when properly channeled. If you're envious because you're, you know, your friend knows more about Desperate Housewives than you, I guess that shows off or whatever, Kardashians or whatever, that's not good. If you're envious because they have a cooler iPhone than you or whatever, that's not good. But if we can make people envy productivity and sustainability and want it and realize it's actually not that hard to have and build it, that can be very positive. So it has that impact as well. But it has a different impact. It has a social impact where all of a sudden, if you own that, you're a lot less concerned about life. And you're, you're free to be a lot more human. See, what you have to understand is that it's not just the ecosystem that's sick. The human race is sick. And I don't mean just like sick, like, you know, he's sick, he killed people or whatever. I mean, we're sick. We have, a, we have an illness. That's modern society. And it cre it's, its number one symptom is anxiety. With anxiety and stress... A whole web of problems come from that and stem from that. That's a lot of us came to prepping because of anxiety and stress. We, we we experienced it for long enough, and then we finally realized that everything was stressing us out as bad as it was. If it all went away at once, it would be worse, right? Think about how many of you had that that moment somewhere in your your walk toward preparedness. You were like, jobs suck, people suck, overcrowded sucks, suburbs suck, too many people, too much of this, too much of that. Ugh, it all sucks, and you go, but what if it wasn't here? Oh, that would suck worse. You might not have articulated it that way, but that's what happens. 
So now you become anxious and stressed over the very thing stressing you going away. How would you ever get freedom from it at that point? It's stressing me out because I got this job that I hate, but it's stressing me out more that I could lose it. It's stressing me out that I have this house payment that's so high, but it's stressing me out more that I might not be able to make it. It's stressing me out that my kids have such a shitty school system to be part of, but it's stressing me out more. What if we had to lose, live somewhere where it was worse? Think about it. Now, if I can meet 50% of your survival needs, needs, not wants, just 50%, with a forest system that you own, it's yours. I won't take it from you. Sure not taking it for you any more than they would take your car away from you, especially once your car's paid for. It's yours. Do you think that starts to reduce stress? Now take this to the next logical question. If, if your life was easier, if you had, and I don't mean that you don't have to work anymore, you're retired and have a billion dollars, right? I just mean that your life was easier because you looked around, instead of going, I could lose everything I have, you go, look at all the things that I can't lose. Or that if I lose this, I mean, it's the extreme. It's, it's, not, it's not probable. Because just, I mean, honestly, the, the, the odds that any person could lose a job tomorrow morning are relatively high. It, it, it's a probable thing that you could lose your job, even if you don't think it is. And you know it, and that's why it's in the back of your mind. But if you just looked around and went, I know that all the, the, the kids will eat. I know that. I know that I'll be able to sit here and enjoy my life to some degree. I know that I have some level of guaranteed stability in my life now. That anything but a truly catastrophic event is not going to take away. And even if that happens, since I'm a survivalist, I have a plan for that. I'm not betting on that, but I have, I'm not betting on it not happening. I got a plan for that, that's shelved. That's, that's my long-term, you know, grid down plan. That's over here. That's, that's all that extra food stored away and all that. But day to day, I don't care. I, there's that's coming in this week and that's coming in next week. And, you know, if the, even if the electricity went off, we got plenty of wood to burn and I got water and I've got food and you had that security. Not even 100%, just half. What kind of weight comes off you? So the next logical question, once you accept that, can be the case, is what kind of person would that make you? How would that alter who you are? Might you be a little bit more willing to take your time to help another person? Might you be a little bit more able to do so? Might you be a better father, a better brother, a better sister? a better citizen in the true meaning of the word? Might you be able to do more, even with the same amount of time, because you're not spending energy and time in a stressed and worried state? And can we do this? Can this be done? And the answer is yes. In fact, the more it's done, the easier it gets. If, if, you, if you have somebody pioneer this, in one place, and come up and say, look, I'm not telling you this is the best way to do it, but I made some mistakes, some stuff died, some stuff lived, but in the end, this is my blueprint that works here. Take this blueprint and build off of it. Does it get easier? As you get more buy-in, does it get easier? And the answer is yes, of course it does. And I, I believe that in the future, this will be as common as a lawn. 
this is this this will be what people do. This when people buy a piece of property, whether there's a house on it or not, this will be like one logical. Well, where's the food forest go? Where, where do I put my where do I put my trees and where do I put my grapes and where does the little pond go and where is the where's the chicken going to eat and where do I house the animal? Where, where does this go? That it, that it will be the same as going. Oh, where am I going to put my uh, you know right now my Bermuda grass and. Re- Where am I going to have my sprinkler system? And where's my little bird bath going to go? And my little, you know, round thing that one tree in the front yard goes in. The way that we think now, it will it will be replaced with this concept because it it makes sense. It's the only logical place to go from here. How much more grass are we going to plant before we go? This stuff sucks. I have to I have to weed it. I have to put chemicals on it. I have to fertilize it. I have to water it. I have to spend my weekends cutting it and caring for it and edging it or pay someone to do that for me and I get nothing. I get absolutely f all nothing from a lawn. Please tell me what a lawn gives you other than a green space to look at and say mine's greener than Phil's down the road. That is all. It gives you absolutely f all nothing, but a pain in the back and a pain in the pocket. And a forest gives you everything I talked about today. Why do we even have lawns? Now I think there's a place for some. There's pasture. A pasture. I'm not talking about. That's you know we can have pasture integrated right into forest systems. As animals eat that, it provide pastures provide medicine. Plantain is one of the most amazing plants in the world for medicine. Next time you get a wasp bite, if you know where plantain is, a wasp thing or a, a mosquito, just crush up some plantain and put that on there and watch what happens. You'll, you'll never buy an ointment for that crap ever again. You won't worry about it. So pass your this lawn, true lawn, grass. Well, we can even make it sort of pasture-like, but, you know, for kids to play soccer on and football and for some gathering spaces that are a little bit more open for certain times of the year and some ornamental, like, yeah, sure, but not, not, the, not the ratios that we have today. Half-acre lawn, two trees. Stupid. Stupid. We are an idiotic society. Like I said, we're sick. We've actually gone out of our way. To make mulberry trees not have mulberries, pear trees not have pears, and pistachios not have pistachios. We've actually taken productive trees and made them non-productive because we're so arrogant in this nation that we think of food falling onto our lawn as litter. We think of food falling out of a tree as garbage. We are sick. And like I said, forests can provide medicine in more ways than one. The number one sickness in our society is mental illness. It's not diabetes. It's not cancer. I think a lot of people with cancer, they get cancer because their body system is, is weakened through stress, and the stress is directly attributed to mental illness. Now, I'm not talking about people that are batshit crazy, running around thinking they're five different people or something like that. I'm talking about mental illness that would make a person spend thousands of dollars for a green lawn. That's a mental illness. 
a mental illness that would make somebody spend a hundred thousand dollars to get a degree from a school with a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt that will likely maybe get them a job making $25,000 a year, which is barely enough to live on, let alone pay the debt back. That's a mental illness. A mental illness that has resulted in a nation where children are told everybody should go to college when we know we're lying to them, and they end up with that debt. That's a mental illness. A mental illness where people come out as investment advisors and get famous until you can retire at 59 if you invest correctly. And when the whole economy goes to shit, they come out and tell you, well, now you're going to work till you're 70 like it's okay. And, and people buy their bullshit. Mental illness. We're a mentally ill, weak, sick, lazy society. And we are desperately in need of something to cure that illness. And, and if we just planted enough forest gardens, would it all go away? No. But it's a very good treatment. I mean, we need people to get off their butts. Just walk again. But forests are not a bad place to take a walk in. We did one of those yesterday, just a natural forest that we took a walk in. It was pretty cool. The only thing we didn't like was the freaking garbage laying around. We're sick. We are. We're mentally ill. How mentally ill do you have to be to go walk through something beautiful, drink water, have a water bottle with you, and throw it on the ground. There, there's, there's, a, see, people just look at that and go like, you know, Joe said yesterday, well, if you shot his ass in the leg, he'll remember that walk and he wouldn't litter again. And there, you know, there's an asshole nature to people that, you know, you sometimes think of meeting force with force or force with excessive force, right? Shooting somebody a leg over a water bottle. But there probably wouldn't be a lot of water bottles out there, to be fair. But the, the, the reality is, who does that? Is it just laziness, really? Is there, Or is there really... I mean, you've walked in with the bottle full. It weighs less. You could walk out with it empty. There's something wrong that we think that's okay. That's probably the same guy with True Green Chemlon, you know, taking care of his lawn. It is because we've let everybody else do for us that we think this is okay. It's because somebody else will fix it. The person who throws that bottle down doesn't really understand. Like They understand if you actually sat them down and had a conversation. But in that moment where their mental illness and they throw the thing on the ground, somebody will take care of that. That's what they're thinking. Somebody will do that. Somebody will fix that. This is a park. they got to have people paid to take care of shit like this. That's not my problem anymore. That's gone. That's where we are. And Jeff Lawton in Greening the Desert said we can solve all the world's problems in a garden. And when he said that, he was talking about a forest garden, a food forest, like I'm talking about today. So he didn't mean, you know, your, your square foot garden or your typical backyard garden with a few uh, beets and carrots and things in it. He meant this type of system. I don't know if I'm that optimistic. But if we can survive, solve 10% of the world's problems with this, it's a lot of problems. Here's my bigger question for you. How many problems can you solve for yourself? And at the end, I want to throw in here, they don't have to be big. You don't have to have three quarters of an acre or half of an acre. They can be small. We've got some little systems that we're building right now. One is nine feet by nine feet by nine feet. I didn't leave a dimension out. It's a triangle. 
It won't do all of these things, but it'll function in all of these ways. We have another one that's about 15 feet by 40 feet. And another one that's about 10 feet by 30 feet. All three of those will be dramatically productive over the next five years. Little spaces. And we have the urban space. That urban space is less square footage than a lot of McMansions have inside their walls. And it'll probably produce more than we need. We have a garden that we put in that's um, about 150 feet long, 200 feet long, by about 40 feet wide. That'll be another productive space. It'll be built on this system. I just want you to understand they don't have to be big. Uh, the, the most valuable thing, if you're going to be in a small space that I've given you today, is the concept of when a tree gets higher than you can reach, prune it. You can put so much in a, such a small space if you'll take that approach. And eventually you won't have to prune as much because the trees will stunt, just like a bonsai. We can do this anywhere. question is, will we? And when I say will we, I mean all of us. The, 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 will this become what I think it is? Like this will be, like you buy a house, this is what you're thinking. Like where do I do this? Like that will become more people do that than figure out where they're going to put their sprinkler system and their grass in. Yeah, I do. But, you know, I don't really know that. That's the, you know, I look at it and go, this is a logical progression of an idea. This is a growth market. I do marketing. I think about things that way. Yeah, this seems like where we'll go. How long? I don't know, 15, 20 years. Hopefully the whole thing doesn't go crap the bed by then, and hopefully this helps stabilize it when it does. But I don't really know that. I do know that I'm going to do it. So my question for you is, will you? And if you live in an apartment, I get it. <laughs> you know what, though? Go, go do this as a gorilla somewhere. Go find a place. Go ask somebody if you can do it on their land. Learn from it. Prove it. Turn it into a skill. Turn it into a business. If you think about it, this should be this should be a growth industry. Right now, there should be people that this is what they do. They just like come to your house and say, well, where do you want to allocate for this? And you go, that piece there, and they go, okay, well, that's a half of an acre. Give me a minute. Shoot some lines. Think about some things. Do a species analysis. Do, do a sector analysis and go, yeah, we're, we, if we come in here and do this, we're going to plant 35 trees. Here's the stuff you can pick from. Tell us which ones you like. We're going to plant a bunch of other stuff. This is how much it's going to cost. It'll be about five years till it's fully mature. We can leave you a maintenance plan, or we can come do the maintenance for you. Let's go. Let's roll. That, that's what this should be already. Somebody's going to do it. Somebody's going to take this and turn it into a freaking franchise. I'm telling you, there will be, within 10 years, there will be a franchise doing this. Where people will go, they'll take a PDC, an urban course, a soil course. They'll take an intensive, you know, like a 30-day intensive. And they'll pay big money for it, $25,000, $50,000 or more. And they'll be given a protective ter protected territory with a marketing machine like you get a Domino's pizza with. And they'll work like slaves for the first five years, and they'll become very wealthy by the end of it. I, I say that's going to happen. But if it doesn't, it doesn't stop you. If I can build a little food forest in a 9 by 9 by 9 foot triangle, you probably can find some place to build one. And if you're thinking, well, I don't want to do it. Okay, don't. That's okay. Not, everybody, not everybody's going to do this. 
I just wanted to make a case to you today to how it works, that it works, why it works, and why you'd want to consider it. I don't know. If you're telling me you're a modern survivalist, and I say here's your six primary survival needs, and I can largely meet at least five of the six with this, and you want to go back to how many cases of Mountain House should I put up? I'll tell you this, if that's your question, a lot of them, because you're going to need them. You're really going to need them at some point, if that's what you're going to rely on, because you're not just going to be feeding yourself. Hopefully, you'll have somebody you can sell some of it to for the other needs that you're going to have. And I'm not saying don't put up the long, because we do. I'm just saying, doesn't it make more sense to build a sustainable system for yourself and hopefully others emulate it? Anyway, um, this kind of went all over the place a little bit today. I apologize for that. I tried to cover some things I've never covered before. Um, This is what I'd like to do. I'd like to plan a future show on this same subject based 100% on audience questions. So if you have a question relating to the anything to do with food forests, send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com and just put food forest question in the subject line. I'll put them away for a couple weeks and we'll come back at this. Tomorrow I'm going to have an awesome interview for you. The next day I'm going to have an awesome interview for you. Can't tell who those are right now. I don't remember. Um, yeah, one is the Farmstead Meatsmith. I'm talking about curing meats. And the other one's a dude named David Nash who's been on before that we're going to talk about DIY prepping. So uh, we'll have both of those on it for you later this week and we'll have our usually, usual Friday call-in show. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that, that, that blah, blah, blah. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way